Hello, and thank you once again for joining us for another episode of the Playsheet Podcast. I'm Charles, and I'm here as always with my friend Joe. Hey there, guys. And Joe, we're through week two now, probably still a little bit early to really start to pull together patterns and form and shape, but certainly there's plenty to talk about following the latest round of games from week two. Where do you want to start off? Should we should we kick off with Chiefs and Ravens being the big primetime game this week? Yeah, let's start off with Chiefs-Ravens. So we've been blessed this season so far, I think, in terms of the quality of primetime games. Aside from the Rams-Bears game last week, I think every single primetime game we've had has been an absolute blinder. And that didn't change in any way with the Chiefs-Ravens late on Sunday night. I think that a lot of people had Chiefs probably slight favourites going into this, based on the history between these two teams in recent years and the continued good form of the Chiefs. But the Ravens really came through in this one. Yeah, I was really surprised. I, I was definitely one of those people that was more confident of the Chiefs than the Ravens. And part of that was because of how much the Ravens' defence has suffered through injuries, on top of, of course, prominent players of the running game. So I thought they looked a much weaker side than they did when they played last season. So I was fairly confident that the Chiefs would win this by a score or two. I was surprised. What do you think was the difference for the Ravens in this game, Joe? That's a really good question. I'm not sure if it was a difference for the Ravens. I think that an issue certainly for the Chiefs was that their defence to start the season so far hasn't been performing very well. Now, I know we're only two games in, and so two games in, you can't draw meaningful conclusions just yet. But in terms of yards allowed, Chiefs are the worst. In terms of scoring defence, I think they're 27th worst. The Chiefs' defence hasn't really come into gear at all so far, and... We didn't see very much of the punters at all on Sunday night. Basically, well, most of the Ravens' drives ended in scores. And that goes along with another stat as well, that I believe that the Chiefs last season gave up something like 72.9% of scores on red zone chances. So they're not defending well. And the Ravens took advantage of that. The Ravens played their game. They pounded the ball. They were predictable, if anything. We know that's how the Ravens play. They still managed to get 251 yards on the ground against this Chiefs' defense, which... I don't want to say it's panic stations, but it's something that should be of concern and definitely needs addressing if the Chiefs want to make it three consecutive appearances in the Super Bowl. And, uh, I mean, again, too early to sort of be making wild predictions or crazy claims, but do you think there's there's a real risk that that might not be the case this season? Still really too early to say. This is still a team with Mahomes, still a team with Hill, still a team with Kelsey. And despite kind of what everyone said last year... Even if you keep these guys off the field, they'll still come on. They'll still score against you. These guys are relentless and they're still a great side. There's a frailty there, though. There's a frailty which teams, I think, will continue to try to take advantage of. Combine this with a frailty we saw on the O-line, which I know they've made some moves to address, but it's probably still not as strong as they'd like it to be. This isn't an infallible team, if that makes sense. It's not perhaps as invincible looking as it might have felt at this point in the season last year. You've pointed out two slight weaknesses of the Chiefs this season. A weakness that we pointed out last season was their run game. And if we take a look at this game here, it was once again really found lacking. I think once you combine that with their step back in their defence, that's where troubles really can occur. You know, if they can't stop the points being scored against them and they are unable to establish 
a dominant run game that keeps teams honest, then that's how you can find those gaps and cracks and beat a team like the Chiefs. That's right. And we don't want to get too down on this team after two games. They're still 1-1. They're still an extremely good side. And they're still a team that I'd bet on them in most matchups that we've got ahead for the rest of the year. But it's just that feeling of invincibility, that feeling that every time they go on the field, they've already beat their opponent. That was starting to seep in last season. It's probably not there now. Taking away from the Chiefs for a moment here, though, because we're talking about the Chiefs, it was a very good performance by the Ravens. Coming back from what was a close game last week against the Raiders, which they ultimately came on the wrong side of, the thing that stood out for me in this game that really stood out, I believe, was the leadership of Lamar Jackson. We can talk about his running. We can talk about all the positive aspects of his game. But I think that's something that's often lost and something that's not talked about too much is his leadership. This was a guy who was willing to put every important moment of a game on his shoulders. He ran that team like a seasoned veteran. And I know he's, you know, three, four years in the league now. But that was really coming through probably stronger than I've seen in previous seasons. He wanted to put the team on his shoulders, and he did. And I think that... You know, people are often very quick to point out the deficiencies in Lamar Jackson's game and often exaggerate what those deficiencies are because they talk about his passing, but we've seen him have some really great passing games. I think this is an, a positive part of his game which isn't talked about, and I just want to draw attention to it. Yeah, and you, you talk about Lamar Jackson putting the game on his shoulders and, and playing that leadership role. I don't know if you saw in the one of the final plays of the game, really, but when they went for that fourth and one which they needed to make to then get into victory position. John Harbour was yelling at, at Jackson from the sideline and he was saying, do you want to take this? Do you, are you good for this? And, you know, Jackson was the man that... Yes, coach. Yes, coach, yeah. he was. And they nailed it, Yeah, you know? So, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. I think that because as well, again, when it's early on in the season, all you can really compare back to is, is last season because there's not enough kind of data and information there to, to show trends this early on. But you look back to Lamar Jackson from last season, there was a lot of whining going on, wasn't there? There was a lot of, oh, teams know what we're going to be doing. Teams are, are obvious to us. He was complaining a lot. And tough loss against the Raiders in week one. But this shows, I would say, maybe a bit of maturity that in week two, he's getting over the loss. He's not complaining. He's looking forward. And they delivered a great victory. It's interesting that you have that slant on it because I'm not sure if I'd call what he was saying last season complaining. I know what you're talking about. It felt to me more like self-doubt more than anything. I think it's taken a bit of a plateau and he was saying that, you know, teams seem to know what I'm doing. Teams seem to have worked me out. It seemed like a kind of self-doubt thing that was creeping through to his game just because it had maybe a stretch of three, four games where he hadn't performed at the, you know, meteoric standard that he'd previously set. So it's an interesting that you got a slightly different view. I think regardless though, like you say, it's maturity that he showed on Sunday night in an extremely high-pressured game, the first home game at the Raven Stadium for an awful long amount of time. There was a lot of people who had a lot of pressure on him that night, and he delivered. Yeah. So let's talk about the Titans next, because they're a team that we touched on briefly in week one. Tough loss to the Cardinals. And then they came back this week with an overtime win against Seattle. What did you learn from this game in, in terms of both teams? Because both teams sort of struggled a little bit in week one and then there was there were some big scores in this game. I think this game is the definition really of what we've been talking about here or where it is just still too early in the season to make meaningful conclusions about most teams. The Titans 
showed a lot of guts this week coming from behind to beat the Seahawks in Seattle. You know, there was quite a deficit there at one point. The week before that, they got absolutely embarrassed by the Cardinals. Likewise, Seattle played a very solid measured game against the Colts, managed the game well, played quite professionally. And in this game, it all kind of fell apart for them, especially in the kind of fourth quarter where Wilson probably wasn't playing to the standard that he normally sets for himself. It's really, really hard to make a judgment on either of these teams because whatever you say, really, you could draw an example from either game and just disprove what you've said. Yeah. Uh, What would you say about the defence of of both teams? Because I get the feeling that although the Titans stepped up offensively, uh, it's difficult, right? Because you're against Russ. But both teams were very, very leaky. Uh, It felt like an absolute shootout at one point. I mean... There were bombs being thrown by by Russ so far down the field with zero coverage. The wide receivers for the Seahawks were just trotting it in. It feels like both teams are lacking that defensive solidarity over the course of, of two games. 99% agree with you there. The only factor I'd just like to mitigate for the Titans slightly is I think that Tyler Lockett has been running some extremely good routes through the first two games. He's been just breaking the ankles of defensive backs and just getting himself open through doing that. Yeah, that's That's a slight mitigating factor, but I agree with what you're saying there. And what I probably describe it as really going on from last season, and I'm using last season really here as a judgment, but we've got two playoff teams that don't have playoff quality defenses. The defense for the Seahawks last year was abysmal through most of the season, got slightly better towards the end of the year, but it wasn't playoff quality by any means whatsoever. And the Titans, although they've made you know moves to try and address it, their pass rush still isn't good enough to really get them through the playoffs. And then two teams that I feel I can't stop talking about, Joe. Uh, let's touch on Cowboys versus Chargers. And... You know, I've stated in the in the early episodes, I was a big fan of this Chargers team. I think they've made good moves to help them on their kind of O-line and special teams. But if this wasn't another tough defeat for them that looked just like the many defeats they took last season. You know, new coaching lineup, but same old mistakes. Just it seems like they'll always find a way to shoot themselves in the foot. This game, we had, what, two touchdowns that were called back for penalties. Yeah. There was the interception in the end zone, which was unfortunate. Look, Herbert threw the interception, but you look at that play, Keenan Allen slipped over. Had Keenan Allen not slipped over, it probably wouldn't have been an interception, but it happened. It happened. It's an interception in the end zone. Had the Chargers not made these mistakes, I think they could have easily had, you know, more than 30 points against this Cowboys team. They, they almost certainly would have had more than 30 points against this Cowboys team. Yeah, yeah. This is the thing. It's really tough to fathom how it all collapsed like it did for them. I will say this. I think Dak in the first two games of the season has really put out a good showing for himself. He looks almost like a renewed individual. And I think him and his wide receivers did a great job against the Chargers. I completely agree with you. There are some silly mistakes in there for the Chargers. I think it's stuff that discipline and training can root out. But then there's also, as you mentioned, a few unfortunate mistakes that you're just never going to be able to eradicate from the game. Something that is still a concern for me with the Cowboys is Zeke and what they're going to be able to get out of him this season. I think you raise a really good point there, Charles. And a lot of this comes down to really how much is invested in this player. 
I don't think it's been overcritical in any way at all to say that Zeke hasn't been performing probably for about a season and two games now. This season, he's still not been performing like an elite back, you know, a top five back that he's paid as. Last season, he definitely wasn't. Had the excuse of Dak not being around for most of it, but Dak's back now and it's the same old story. At the end of the day, though, Jerry Jones invested both financially in terms of paying him and, and invested reputationally in terms of deciding to renew his contract, pay him big. It's now very hard for them to turn around and announce explicitly that there'd be a timeshare or that he's not going to be the workhorse back that we thought he would. So even though we were seeing almost an equal split in terms of carries between Pollard and Zeke on Sunday evening, I think Zeke had 16, Pollard had 13, although Pollard outrushed him by quite a distance. I'd be very surprised if there's an explicit statement saying that they're going to be sharing the backfield. I don't know if you've got a view on that. I completely agree with you. Out of the two, Pollard has, without question, looked like the better back over the first two games of of this season so far. But to the point that you've just made around the level of investment that the club's made, both reputationally and financially, I just think you can't be seen, what, one, two seasons after you've made a big payday to a massive name like Zeke to suddenly say he's going to be sharing the backfield. Although I think you can start to allow that to happen, like we saw a little bit last game. I I just don't think there'll ever be a statement that goes out to the media that will cement that. Because again, what's that going to do to Zeke's confidence if that is something that he's also struggling with, perhaps? The problem is, though, I think that this question will kind of creep in more. I wouldn't be surprised if in the pre-game press conferences this week we have journalists asking if the backfield is a timeshare now if that's actually a thing and there's only so long that you can say no it's not no it's not while we're getting exactly equal splits or maybe even more splits to Pollard that you can't just keep that lie up anymore. So do you think that could potentially lead to some detrimental performances in so much as if the media's asking those questions do you think Mike might turn around and, and give more carries to Zeke that he maybe necessarily wouldn't want to. I think there's maybe a case that they've already given him more carries than he wants. <laughs> yeah. When Pollard is clearly is is clearly the hot hand, he's clearly the form back right now. He's got far more yards per carry in these games than Zeke has. Surely you'd probably want to give him more carries as things stand right now. But you're almost kind of you can't be paying a back, you know, fifteen million plus a year and then not play him. Yeah, that's exactly the thing. I, I think that is the issue and that that is going to be something that the Cowboys are going to have to overcome this season on top of, you know, the standard footballing stuff that they're going to have to deal with. It's a bit of a headache for them and, you know, we say it time and time again, but that is the risk of giving a, a you know, a big payday to a running back. Yeah, that's Zeke. But look, we've talked about Zeke on about the last three shows now. So unless Zeke does something different or gets good, <laughs> let's put Zeke to bed for the moment. <laughs> yeah. Okay then, so let's talk about something that I thought we had put to bed, which is something that I was chatting about in the preseason around the NFL's taunting rule. I had hoped it was going to be a bit like the rule that came in for the quarterback and safe tackles several years back. It would be very loud in preseason. They'd really crack down on it. Week one came along, didn't really see much about it at all. Thought, yeah, brilliant. This is this is how it's going to go. But week two, it's flared up again, hasn't it? Really has. And, you know, there are a couple of really bad examples of how the rule was applied this week. The one that stands out was DJ Reed for the Seahawks. 
I mean, anyone go and look at that clip. Go and look at what Reed did after the play. Stared? <laughs> well, yeah, he stared. He might have maybe slightly flexed, slightly flexed his arms a little bit. But, you know, you'd be really stretched to call that taunting. Really stretched to call that taunting. But it was applied. I, like, I mean, how many calls were there? I, I think there were something like nine taunting calls across the National Football League in game week two, which is a ridiculous amount, really. Look, it's important to note, right, this isn't a new rule. Taunting rule has been on the books for quite a while now. What has changed is that the ownership decided that they were going to focus more on enforcing the rule, believing that the enforcement of the rule had got too lax. This was about a balance that they felt was unbalanced, and it just seems it's totally flipped the other way. I don't think any fan, I don't think that any viewer of a game really wants taunting penalties enforced in this way. No, and again, it's another thing we mentioned in pre-season. We said, look, okay, because it's such a subjective rule to enforce it with any form of consistency across game weeks and across officiators it's going to be almost impossible to do and we've already witnessed that in week two when you just look at the scale of what we're giving away taunting fouls and penalties for it's absolutely insane and I think a really telling thing that's sort of come out this week as a result of it is how anti the NFL PA have been surrounding this. JC Tretter has come out and openly said the players did not want this, but the NFL have pushed it through regardless. Well, the issue slightly is that there's basically only one person who wanted this. This was wholly bought up by one person, and that's John Mara. Now, John Mara, the owner of a New York Giants, is slightly NFL royalty. He's the son of Wellington Mara, who was the son of Tim Mara, and they've owned the Giants since the beginning of time when the Giants were, you know, one of the very early NFL teams, one of the most successful teams back in the 30s, those early days. The Mara family are NFL royalty. It was only John Mara who raised this point, and it was only Mara who seemingly wanted it, but he managed to get it through. The owners, you know, acquiesced to what he'd proposed. I think there's going to be such a pushback soon because, like you say, none of the players want it. There wasn't a strong calling for it from fans. I think the referees probably don't want it as well because it's making their life very hard <laughs> yeah. and they're having to be consistent on a very subjective thing here. I think everyone probably doesn't want this. We might even see a situation where the league announce soon that they're going to go back on this or change how they're applying it or go to a previous level of enforcement. I can see something like that because it's become such a thing now. It's gaining such kind of speed and momentum I think something has to explicitly happen rather than it just fade away I think that's also probably something that a lot of our listeners will agree on so there's probably uh, not too much of a discussion point there because I think we're all in <laughs> not the really same discussion camp. point yeah I think we're all aligned I think it's just going to be interesting to see how it plays out now that's the only thing that no one knows for sure yeah and then we received a question from one of our listeners earlier on this week around intentional grounding Joe I don't know if you want to take that one yeah, sure. So intentional grounding. I think there's often kind of confusion on what kind of qualifies as intentional grounding. And the listener kind of asked, saying that the, the quarterback was basically hit as he threw the ball. So it was almost like he couldn't not intentionally ground it. Why was he called for that when it was other players who influenced what happened in the play? So intentional grounding can only be called if there's a direct risk that that player is going to lose ground, that they're going to be sacked or that there's a direct risk of peril to their field position. So you can only call it when other players are involved and when pass rushes are getting onto the quarterback. That's point one. 
Intentional grounding can only be called in the pocket, generally. Basically, if a quarterback escapes from the pocket and throws the ball out, not intentional grounding. Unless the ball doesn't go to the line of scrimmage. That's the one thing there. So that whole point about the ball having to get to the line of scrimmage, that's only relevant when a quarterback has left the V pocket. And then thirdly, it's about whether a receiver is in range. If there's a receiver in the general area code that he throws the ball to, probably not going to be intentional grounding. If a receiver was never going to catch it, never anywhere near it, was never going to be a pass that was going to make sense, intentional grounding. So there's a few things that have to happen there really for intentional grounding to be called. But that key aspect, which people sometimes are unaware of, is that there has to be pressure on the cornerback. Fantastic. And that applies also for throwing it out of bounds, right? That's right, yeah. So if you throw it out of bounds, then arguably you're not throwing it to an eligible receiver at all. If it's clearly going out of bounds and you've made no effort to throw it to a guy who might be on the sideline, yeah, that's intentional grounding. But again, for that to happen, you'd have to be in the pocket and there'd have to be imminent pressure on you from a pass rusher. Okie doke. So shall we move on from the question? It's, it was good to get a question. I want more because then we can set up a little Joe's question corner. I'm loving this. <laughs> Just don't call it that. <laughs> but let's move on to some previews for next week's games. And let's start with the Thursday night game, which sees Carolina take on the Texans, who, again, have been surpassing expectations. Certainly for me, I don't know if you feel the same. Yeah, well, look, Carolina, they're a 2-0 team. And Darnold quietly has been playing well there. He's not been setting the world on fire. He's not been, you know, throwing out huge bombs. But he seems to be a lot more relaxed. He seems to be comfortable in the system. He seems to be enjoying his football. Carolina, whisper it quietly, could be heading into week four as a 3-0 team. Now, we've obviously got a big boy in the division in terms of Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but, uh, you know, they won't be doing their playoff chances any harm at all at 3-0. It's the Carolina team who not a lot of people had very much faith in going into the season. I'd say as well, Thursday night football, Carolina versus Houston, it might not be two teams which, you know, sets too many people's pulses racing, but I think a lot of people, again, would have said that about the Giants and Washington football team last week, and that was an absolute stunner of a game. So... If what we've seen in primetime so far carries on, I'm looking forward to uh, the Panthers against the Texans. It's a really good point that you raise about Carolina, Joe. They're a team that I suppose has flown under the radar a little bit for myself. The matchups that they've had so far have not been the ones that I've been particularly focused on. But you're absolutely right. They are 2-0. And it'll be very interesting to see how they fare against the Texans because do we know... Is Mills still going to be leading the Texans next week or are they going to get Tyrod back? Mills will be starting. Tyrod has been ruled out. So you're going to have Mills starting, which I think at the end of the day, this was a a third round quarterback for a reason. He's not a quarterback who's supposed to be starting this early in his career. He's a guy who had deficiencies there, which a team thought they could iron out. But he's a work in progress and I think it adds concern to this Texans team. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the perfect opportunity for Carolina to take advantage of them, especially because it could be argued that they have been overperforming recently. Where do you think Carolina could potentially hurt the Texans? What do you think would be the right game plan for them to take them on on Thursday night? 
Well, I think it's absolutely to unsettle their rookie starting quarterback. But equally as well, we know where the Houston Texans will probably go. They have a vast running back room consisting primarily of RB2s from other teams. It basically sucks them all in. If you stop the run against this Houston team, I think there won't be very much left on the offense at all. And that, that, you know, that could be me doing a massive disservice to Mills and he could go out and play a rookie game for the ages. But in all chances, he probably won't. This is the Panthers team. Don't forget that last week held Jameis Winston to seven points. And I know people saying Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston was the bee's knees in everyone's eyes after week one with his five bombs. So he didn't get bad overnight. The Panthers had a game plan to nullify him and they were very successful in doing that. And they nullified Kamara as well. This Panthers team, if, if they play D like they did last week, I think this Texans team are in for a world of pain. I like the idea of C-Mac going up against this like entire roster of running backs that the Texans have almost like 1v100 (laughs) (laughs) well it kind of basically is that so you know Ingram Lindsay David Johnson there's a lot of guys there and I think that they'll need to pull tricks out of all of them to really threaten this Carolina Panthers team but all of those running backs you know there's some experienced guys there gonna have to really support this new quarterback And then a game that I know you're quite keen to talk about is Chargers versus Chiefs. So why don't you run us through that? Well, I just want to mention how this was a very close game last season. I believe believe this game was Justin Herbert's first start last year. I could be wrong on that. I've not checked that. But if I seem to recall, this was a very, very close game through most of the game. And at one point, Herbert threw... He threw one of his only rookie mistakes of the season. He threw a bad interception. And that was basically the difference maker in this game. It was was a lot closer than what people had it. I think Herbert has developed at a great rate since then. This Chargers team are a stronger team than last year with fewer injuries. Don't get me wrong, they'll still probably find a way to shoot themselves in the foot somehow. But Chiefs coming off a loss, a bit, you know, licking their wounds. This has the makings of a really good divisional matchup. Hmm. If I recall correctly, I think it was quite a low-scoring game last time they matched up. That's right. Yeah, I think it was. It was. I think one team had like seventeen. I think it was like seventeen, fourteen, or twenty seventeen. You're right. It, it was a very low-scoring close game. But you know, low-scoring close games can be very exciting. Oh, they can. It be. might not pan out like that again. This is the only thing that I was going to go on to say, which is last season it was a very low-scoring game and ended up being close. I'm not so sure we're going to get a repeat of that, and I just question whether the Chargers offense is going to be able to keep up with the Chiefs offense there's only one way to find out and that's uh that's watching it this Sunday okay then so another quite important conference matchup then Bucks and Rams and uh, both teams have been performing solidly where do you think this could end up yeah now a lot of people had a lot of hype around Rams going into the season if you look at a lot of the pundits, a lot of the talking heads, when they were asked, you know, who's going to make Super Bowl, a lot of them had Rams down. And I'm not fully on board with that. I think the Rams are a good team, but I'm not sure really if they've addressed the deficiencies they had last year. And it, it wasn't like Goff was the only deficiency there. I know that Sean McVay kind of positioned it that way, but he wasn't the only deficiency that this team had. In many ways, you've got what a lot of people see as a future NFC championship team against the incumbent with the Buccaneers. You've got two teams who play very hard, very good D lines. We're going to see a lot of D in this game. I've said that now. It's probably going to be a 70-point blowout. We're going to see a lot of good D. We're going to see turnovers. It's going to be a fierce game. And it's going to be bragging rights, really, for who sits atop of the NFC tree. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if my um, my position on the Rams is slightly different from yours. I came into the season not buying into the hype. We both discussed how, you know, Stafford may be an upgrade on Goff, but he's still throwing to the same receivers, which are they wouldn't be on your dream team, that's for sure. But I don't know if over the first two games, I'm kind of softening my stance on that. I think they've played, you know, solid D. You always get solid D from the Rams. Their running game is normally well established, but they have been performing through the air this season. And I know it's only two games and I know one of those games was against the Bears who were defensively tragic. But yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm maybe a little bit more into the Rams than I was at the start of the season. And I'm really excited for this matchup. I think it could be a close one. Okay, fair enough. But, you know, like you say, one of those games was against the Bears, who didn't play well at all. It was, yeah. One of those games was against the Colts, which, you know, was still a very close game. And for nearly half of that game, they were playing against a rookie, what, sixth-round quarterback in Jacob Eason. So they probably should have pulled ahead slightly more than they did in that game. I might be nitpicking here slightly. I might be doing them a disservice. I, I get where you're coming from. But look, like we said, no knockout punches are going to be delivered at this stage. We're only in game week three. But you won't find many people who can make a really strong case for either of these teams probably not being the best two teams in the NFC conference right now. Mm, and Brady is flying, isn't he? This is maybe the best version of Brady we've ever seen. He was incredible. He was robotic in terms of how automatic he was. You know, when you go back to the Super Bowl runs of 09, his 05 season, he was on a different planet then. But the breadth of the passes that he's making, uh, the just quality and consistency that he's had through these early games, uh, something else. It's two games. It's two games. Again, let's not get carried away. He could equally have a bummer. There were times during the playoffs last season, the playoff game against... Green Bay, it seemed that he did almost everything he could to almost lose that game in the third quarter. That was only four games away. So, you know, take things into context and take things with a pinch of salt a little bit, but he's off to an absolute flyer, like you say, this season. Yeah. And finally then, let's talk about Green Bay once more. Sometimes I get excited to talk about Green Bay, sometimes less so. But this week, they're going up against San Francisco. Green Bay have been very hot and cold against really two teams. Just a little bit hot and cold. That's a, that's probably understatement of a pod. Yeah. A little bit hot and cold, yeah. Against two teams that really you'd expect them to dispatch comfortably. They're going up against San Francisco, who again had two very kind of different games in terms of the points that they allowed against them. What do you think this game might be able to shed a bit of light on? I think that we're going to get the real slant on where Green Bay are at. If Green Bay, you know, compete, if they pull a win out somewhere or if they lose in a very close game, I think you can probably make the case for, yeah, that first game was an aberration. It was just a blip. If players had had preseason, they weren't ready for it, whatever. You can write that one off. But equally, if they have a bad loss here, if things don't go to plan, well, then people will say, well, who cares that you beat? The Lions, it's for Lions, isn't it? The Lions have been one of the worst teams in football for the last 10 years. So what does it matter if you beat them? This is, I think, a very early turning point for this Green Bay team. And the rest of their season, let's not get, you know, hyperbole. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But a lot of how, let's say, the first half of the season plays out for them is going to come from this game. And they're going to have to carry a performance into it. Else all the doubts will start creeping in and that Lions game will mean nothing. Yeah, I agree with you. It's game three, so whatever happens, happens. 
but I do think it's a very important game for Green Bay to win, to be honest. Arguably should have beat the Saints, got absolutely battered by them. Then they came back strong against the Lions, but again, it's the Lions. Here's a San Francisco team that did extremely well in week one, but then in week two only beat the Eagles 11-17. So I think really if Green Bay want to say they stand any chance of returning to the conference finals and taking on the Bucks, if that's who it ends up being, they need to be beating teams like this 49ers. I'd say the only thing that Green Bay have got going for them kind of right now, beyond what we just mentioned there, is that the NFC North is looking pretty poor. It's looking pretty poor. I don't think there's going to be many teams above 0.500 in there at all. The Vikings are already 0-2. The Bears 1-1. Lions 0-2. So uh, there's a chance, really, that you can get to playoffs in this division with a 9-8 record. 10-7. Oh, yeah. 10-7 will probably do it. So... Being one and two at this stage of the season wouldn't be the end of the world from a playoff perspective chance. I'm just saying more for a kind of... It seems like this team is a very driven by where their motivation and where their headspace is. It seems when their chins are down, they play really down. And so it feels a little bit like if they get into that kind of funk, it could be extremely damaging early on. Yeah, and I think as well, when you go into the playoffs, it helps so much more when you're a team that's feared... You know, last season, Rodgers was MVP. Green Bay lost a couple of games. They were a team that people were like, oh God, we're going up against Green Bay. Even if they creep in this time around with, like you said, 10-7 record or whatever, it might be a very different feel when they come up against teams in the playoffs who suddenly aren't as scared of them, aren't as scared of Aaron Rodgers and, and they can play a bit more freely and maybe play their own game plan rather than trying to necessarily negate what Green Bay are going to bring? Yeah, there's lots of factors that come into play there. Because if you win a lot of games during the season as well, you're getting that home field advantage most of the time. There's all of these different things. Let's just see, look, they showed themselves to be a mentally weak team in some aspects with that week one loss. Because there's no other way to look at it, like we said, we've already mentioned this a lot, but how they had their heads down and they played like a beaten team after they went behind and when, you know, Rodgers started to play with his head down as well. All right, Joe. Well, I think that wraps us up for this week. It's been a pleasure as always, and I can't wait for week three. I'm so excited that this year we get a 17-week season. You say that every week. Oh, man, I'm buzzing. <laughs> because like, as we get through week by week, I, I, there's a little bit of me that gets a little bit sadder and sadder that we've got fewer and fewer games to look forward to, but there's going to be that surprise one at the end of the season. Yeah, it, it kind of is crazy, though, because like you say, the next podcast we do would normally be the podcast where we say we're already a quarter into the season, which is kind of crazy, but it's already come round. We get that extra game next week, we'll be less than a quarter into the season still. So yeah, it's nice to have that extra game. I'm sure you'll remind us of it again next week, Chaz. <laughs> Until then, have a great week, enjoy the football, and we'll chat again next week. See you then, Charles.